Do I have everything? Sweaters, books, uh, my skincare. Should I pack a bikini? No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be gone that long. Babe, if you need anything, my family will have stuff too. You need towels? Uh, no. I texted our hosts where we're staying. They should have some. We should sanitize this place on our way out. I'm gonna start bringing stuff down to the car. My partner Sam and I were frantically packing at the last minute in typical travel fashion. It astounds me how even when we book plans months in advance, we still manage to wait until the last possible chance to pack. It's easy to underestimate how long it's gonna take. But this packing wasn't fueled with excitement of a highly anticipated trip because we didn't even know we were leaving until two days ago. And we didn't really understand where we're gonna be staying. I had spent that day in a heat and not because it was a surprisingly sunny Friday in March, warm enough for me to leave the windows open. But my fever was coming from the news. COVID was tearing through New York like, well, like a plague. Even with those biblical scourges of frogs and locusts and the water turning into blood, all of that didn't look as bad as to what COVID was doing to the largest metropolis in the nation. The infection rate was rising, and de Blasio was speculating of turning the Javits Center into a makeshift hospital. The Javits Center, its largest room, is 4,100,000 feet, big enough to fit over 4,000 blue whales. Instead, it would be filled with thousands of people in beds spaced six feet apart. It's fascinating how one tiny microbe can take down an entire empire, possibly the world. I'm not sure why this is surprising. It's not like just because we're in the 21st century, we're immune to one of the oldest ways of destroying us. But there is something so medieval about plagues. They didn't happen now, it's 2020. Even though we knew that this was something that could happen, humans will always think it will happen to someone else. Somehow our hysteria and lack of preparedness always gets the best of us. Coronavirus is, is, is the common cold, folks. The hype of this thing as a pandemic, as the Andromeda strain. As I had to stop myself from researching other plagues throughout history, or else I wouldn't be able to leave our apartment, which is exactly what I needed to do. I spent that day furiously checking Facebook and the news, seeing if it was safe for us to leave New York. De Blasio would be reinstating a travel ban on the city starting on Sunday. So hopefully we had enough time to escape to the country. Tonight, I can report the sky is absolutely falling. We are all doomed. But the uncertainty and limited information kept my adrenaline up all day. Maybe we couldn't leave the city anymore. Would there be people stopping us? Police telling us to turn around and shelter in place in the worst area in the world affected with COVID. Brooklyn's numbers started putting Italy to shame. Sam finally came home from his studio. He looked panicked. We held each other, but not in the way of, it's nice to see you after a day of being apart. It was more of holding on to each other's sanity. We continued to hem and haw on whether or not we should leave. And then we heard a saxophone playing. We stepped outside into the warm March air, onto the balcony, and the music became much louder. 
we turned towards the sound and saw a neighbor, one apartment up and over to the left. He was out on his balcony, playing the blues with the saxophone like Bleeding Gums Murphy for all of Brooklyn to hear. We saw the sun slowly begin to set over the borough, stretching the sky with pinks and lavenders over the gray buildings below it. From our six-story view, we saw people's heads popping out of their windows, stepping out onto their balconies, and perching themselves on their rooftops. Everyone down on the street below stopped what they were doing and looked up to find the music. For a moment, the city was still. All you could hear was the unctuous notes echoing through the evening air. Everyone who heard those chords simultaneously felt sad, but connected. The music put noise in my ears and made my heart squeeze. We're all in this. It was a reminder that we were New Yorkers, that we've withstood the worst the world can offer and still know how to make art out of it. I stared up at him, his yarmulke resting on the back of his head, with children's toys at his feet, and chairs where him and his family occasionally sit out to eat. I loved what he was giving us. Everything I adored about this city was preserved in one moment. He played his final note, long and billowing, one you could feel in your chest. It was carried out by the wind, pushed itself across the Brooklyn landscape. The audience erupted. People shouted from their rooftops, yipped from their balconies, and stomped their feet on the concrete streets. I wrapped my arms around Sam's waist, and his arms went around my shoulders. We soaked in that energy like a sponge, because once it was over, we had to go. We took every paper bag and stuffed it with food. Perishable, non-perishable items in odd numbers. Six packs of spaghetti, five cans of refried beans, a yogurt, three bags of half-eaten cereal, eight bananas, one and a half cartons of orange juice, a whole almond milk. Everything in the kitchen would be packed up and schlepped upstate. The ice cream can stay. Now I have packed for trips before. I know how to whittle my essentials down into a carry-on but I always have a vague plan as to when I would like to return. But this time I had no idea. I didn't know when I would see Brooklyn again. We estimated two weeks. But as I write this to you in July, I'm unsure on whether or not I can go back. If I do, it won't be the life that I had before. So I grabbed everything. I even stuffed a bouquet of tulips in a beer stein and nestled it between Sam and I in the center console. Once the car was packed, we made our way out of Crown Heights and over the BQE. The Kosciusko Bridge went through every color of the rainbow as we zipped through it. We looped our way through the twists and turns of the highway out of the city. With no one else on the road, we sped through. We drove ourselves into the darkness of the Hudson Valley. Today on the episode, we're shocked. We will talk to travelers who had their journeys interrupted because of COVID. From scurrying home early to canceling trips, 
we will unpack how we handled the initial awe of this pandemic. I think everybody was really confused when COVID made its way into the States and started hitchhiking around the world. I personally had to cancel my birthday party. I didn't realize that my birthday suit would be a biohazard jumper. And honestly, I just kind of sighed because I was like, this is just hysteria and we're all going to be going back to normal in a few weeks. We've done this before and we'll do it again. I even started calling it granola virus because I was suspicious. But being in quarantine for four months now, I realized that the joke is on me. Esme, the editor of Full Time Travel, also rolled her eyes at the situation. She was in the midst of packing for a week-long press trip to Hawaii when COVID started to infest New York City. I'll hold my hands up and say that I was very naive about the whole thing. <laughs> And so I think that in the beginning, when this first started to build, if I'm honest, I laughed at quite a few people who were taking it very, very seriously. <laughs> I had a friend who he, he created what he called a go box, which had, you know, he stockpiled masks, food, toilet paper, of course. <laughs> um, and then I, I remember seeing a friend at a co-working space who told me that somebody she knew had bought an inflatable boat in case the government decided to quarantine the island of Manhattan so that her and her family could escape. <laughs> so I was laughing at everybody and just not taking it particularly seriously. And I think that as we moved towards spring, it became really obvious that this wasn't going to be like SARS, where we see a flare up and then it goes away and that it was actually getting quite serious. Before COVID really hit, some of us got a little crazy because there wasn't a game plan. So some of us overprepared and others just went about their day. Sure, use more hand sanitizer and maybe not go to a big gathering, but this is all going to blow over soon. Besides, we all still have plans. So I had been planning this trip to Hawaii probably since the fall of, of last year. It was for the tourist board of Hawaii. The plan was for me to go for a week. I was going to drive all around the island. I was going with a colleague and friend called Amber Snyder, who, who is a, a great travel writer as well. And yeah, the two of us were just going to explore. And it was a very specific itinerary. But as the date for Esme's flight got closer, the numbers in New York began to trickle in. Even our federal government couldn't make a cohesive decision. Everyone was on their own. Many of us had these big trips planned out, and we'd been waiting months to go on. So, with no real direction, should we risk it? When it came around to spring, I was thinking, okay, it does seem a little bit unwise to be traveling right now. However, everything is booked and organized. People have gone to great lengths to make this trip happen for us. And it just felt wrong to decide to cancel at the last minute. Plus, if I'm being honest, I really wanted to visit Hawaii. It's been on my list for a long time. Nobody told us not to go. I think people are just really in denial. And at this point, I, people were talking about it. People were definitely stockpiling hand sanitizer and being more aware. And I personally had 
invested in a few things just in case <laughs> and had also stopped going to the co-working space that I normally work out of. So I was kind of sheltering in place already. I sort of canceled a lot of my plans. It was on my mind, but nobody had said, I think this is really unwise. So I was just like, okay, you know what? We're just going to go and we're going to make it work. It's okay. And at this point, I think in New York City, there have been a few cases, but things didn't really get crazy here until the week that we were actually away in Hawaii. So Esme and her colleague got into a flight. And in untraditional fashion, it was eerily quiet in the airplane. But they still tried to be precautious. The country wasn't in lockdown yet, so everybody was a bit more relaxed. I did see some masks. We were not wearing masks. And at this point, masks were not the norm in New York the way that they are now. But we did bring Clorox. We wiped down our seats. We were luckily enough, it was quite a quiet plane. So we had space to kind of spread out. Um, but we were very aware of people coughing. <laughs> Every time somebody behind us would cough, we would give each other a look like, mm, <laughs> they better not be getting us infected right now. And we also did the classic thing of trying not to touch anything. So when we went to the bathroom, trying to use elbows to open doors and just, just being mindful of surfaces and interaction with other people in general. Loki, it's the best when there's very few people on the plane. I love nothing more than having a whole row to myself. But under what circumstances? I'm at a point with this whole quarantine where I would kill to be wedged between a new mother and her shouting baby and a grandpa who's mistaken my shoulder for a pillow. As long as I'm on my way to somewhere. Ugh, anyways. Esme and her colleague were on a tightly packed itinerary for Hawaii. They would be bouncing from place to place, interviewing people, staying in different places, eating all over the island, constantly touching tables, shaking hands, meeting people, giving kisses on the cheeks, and trying to get close with the locals, as the World Health Organization was telling us to stay six feet apart. The mentality on the island, it was pretty chill. People were still in denial, didn't think it was going to happen, didn't think that it was going to come to the island. But... People were also taking precautions. There was a lot less handshaking going on. I'd noticed some stores, they would have a spray bottle of sanitizer as you were coming into the store and you would be asked to spray your hands before you came in. So yeah, people were definitely sort of thinking about it, but I don't think that it had really hit home for them how serious it was yet. The whole don't worry, be happy vibes on the island didn't quell Esme's rising anxiety when she looked at her phone. Meanwhile... <laughs> my phone, I had to, I have a, like a WhatsApp group with my expat friends out here. There's probably about 15 of us on this thread. And it was blowing up with very anxiety inducing links, <laughs> screenshots, anecdotes. So all through the week, I was getting these messages. And I was obviously caught between wanting to stay in the loop with, with what was going on and thinking, as you say, I have to protect my mental health you know, it made me realize that we are really subjected to a bombardment of information and, and, you know, outreach from other people all day long. And, you know, you're not ready to take that on all the time. And yeah, my, as my anxiety was, was building, I was finding it harder and harder to read those messages. And so I was trying to create like a bubble of, you know, mental stability around myself by avoiding reading those, those alarming things. I decided the best thing to do was just to silence that and not look at it. I didn't look at the news. I tried to just be as present as possible. 
I also found that talking to friends on the phone led to some major mental health spirals for me. I honestly stopped talking because they would just drain my battery like an old phone without a charger. I couldn't handle other people's anxieties and worries and catastrophizing. I ended up going to bed hours before I normally did because I was just so exhausted. Everyone is handling this differently. And for reasons that me and my therapist don't understand, talking to people on the phone exhausts me. The only people that I can really talk to and feel okay with are the ones who are physically near me, like my family and my partner. So as for Esme, at least she wasn't alone on this trip. Being physically present with people helps us not worry as much. I think we did a good job of looking after each other and supporting each other through it. But there were definitely times when we were both feeling very, very anxious. And it was difficult because if, you know, neither of you has a full cup, then you can't support the other one. A lot of things that kept playing on our mind was firstly, what if we get sick while we're on the island of Hawaii and we can't make it home? And secondly, we're already sick, but we're not showing symptoms yet. And we are inadvertently infecting all of these people on the island. And they don't have the medical infrastructure to deal with that kind of an outbreak. And so every time we spend a lot of time with the Hawaiian community, learning about, you know, the origins of hula and, and, you know, just really doing a deep dive into their culture, which was an amazing experience. And one of the things that they always do is, is they'll greet you with a kiss on both cheeks. <laughs> and every time we would get greeted by an elder with a kiss on both cheeks, my heart was pounding. I was like, what if I make them sick? What if right this moment I'm making them sick? And then, oh, just imagine. <laughs> it would have been a terrible story for, for two journalists to come to the island and then end up wiping out half the population. Well, I will say that there were definitely times on the trip when we completely forgot about the virus. Like we, one of the days we decided to take like a spontaneous trip down the Red Road, which is, it's like a 15 mile long, like coastline drive. And there's this beautiful like arc of trees that meet in the middle and secret beaches. And it's just beautiful. We had the windows wound down and the breeze and our music going and this hippie lady like flagged the car down and gave us like, a handful of aloe vera to take with us. <laughs> and there were definitely some moments like that where everything just, it did feel much more like a vacation and just easy breezy. But yeah, there was often like a simmering undercurrent of anxiety. And the other thing I want to say is that it's funny how you don't really realize that in just a few short months, how much things have changed and how much our behavior around each other has changed. Even like, we stayed at the Four Seasons Ho'alalai and we had an amazing dinner there at the sushi restaurant and the chef came out to greet us. And the first thing I did was shake his hand. And when he walked away from the table, I said to Amber, my friend, I was like, oh, I forgot we're not supposed to be shaking hands. <laughs> and now, like, I don't remember the last time I shook hands with somebody. I don't remember the last time I hugged somebody other than my husband. It's amazing how fast we all adjust to this new way of behaving. Esme's trip ended right as the lockdown in New York was being announced, and she was unsure if she'd be able to make it back. In, when we were in the line to go through security, the lady in front of us asked if we were going back to JFK, and we said yes. And she said, I hear they're doing temperature checks now, and the lines are crazy when you get, when you get in. 
I think she was talking about international flights, but that really, again, just sent me on a spiral where I was like, oh my God, this is so, it just, it really ramped up the week that we were gone. And it was frightening how much we suddenly learned. We had the governor announcing on the Friday while we were away that the city was going to go into lockdown on Sunday. We were flying back on Monday. So we knew that we'd be arriving just as lockdown was being enforced. And honestly, I was relieved at the end of the week that A, neither of us had gotten sick. And B, as much as I'd had an amazing time and while I was there, I was very aware that I don't know when I'm next going to be able to travel. So I was trying to savor every second that we were there. I also was looking forward to just getting home, like shutting my door, (laughs) washing my hands (laughs) and hunkering down and staying safe and just not having to feel, you know, just nervous and anxious about being out in the world for a little while. It's always bittersweet when a trip ends, especially when you're going from someplace stunning and sunny like Hawaii to gray, muddy New York. And, you know, there's always a little excitement when you go home. It's nice to be cozy and unwind from a jam-packed trip. But the bitter part was more astringent for Esme because the farthest places she'd be traveling to was from her bedroom to her kitchen. It was a shock to know that that was it. Like indefinitely, we had to try and stay indoors as much as possible. And I think initially I tried to just go out once a day to take my dog for a walk. And that was about it. And it was really difficult because New York apartments, you know what they're like. <laughs> they're teeny tiny. They are not made for quarantining. They're really, New York is an is a outdoors culture. People kind of crash at home, but then most of the time they're out at restaurants, at museums, you know, they're doing all kinds of fun things. So to suddenly have all of those pillars of New York life that I have been accustomed to over the last seven years <laughs> fade away and just be stripped back. And the only thing that you can do is stay inside, watch TV, <laughs> talk to your partner or, you know, whoever's at home. It, it was, it was a real adjustment. I think people hit the ground running and there was lots of, you know, zoom hangouts and, house party, like quiz nights and all kinds of things. So that kept us sane, but it definitely felt different. It was difficult not to get, you know, the fresh air and the vitamin D and to just, to just spend so much time inside is a real foreign concept, especially for New Yorkers, I think. And so we began to adjust. Some of us had to stay at home and get on more Zoom calls. Others had to replan their entire itinerary for the year. And when quarantine hit, the first thing to go was travel. Our vacations were canceled and work trips postponed. And when you cancel a trip, that's a bummer. But COVID isn't just throwing a wrench into our plans. It's dumping the whole damn toolbox on our blueprint for the year. Many of us gave up in the beginning, putting on the quarantine 15 and succumbing to the never ending suggestions of Netflix. But others figured out how to make the most out of this time. 
They scraped their initial drafts of the year and began redrawing new ones. That's what Tamira, the creator of Deluxe Life Media, did when COVID hit. Her and her husband had to cancel their female entrepreneurial retreat to Bali. Her relationship with travel started when she got a job as a flight attendant. She fell in love with that lifestyle immediately, flying from one country to the next, exploring new cities, eating new food. But she wanted it to be on her schedule, not on an airline's departure time. Okay, so when I was a kid, little kid, like, you know, we're playing outside with our friends, and I'm from Ohio, and it was a thing to say, I'm going to dig so, I'm going to dig so far, I'm going to get to China. It was like the <laughs> thing to say, right? So in your mind, it was like, that was literally on the other side of the world. It was so foreign in their minds as a kid. And then when I became a flight attendant, and I swear, in 2000, we went to Shanghai for the first time. They had just opened up. United was now taking us to China. We had all done all our sensitivity training and all that kind of stuff. And so when I was coming down into Shanghai, and this is, Shanghai is different now. Shanghai is no joke now. Beautiful. But in 2000, it was still super country and still not developed in third world. But I'm coming down over the rice paddies. And I'm looking at people literally out the window and they're working in the rice paddies. And I, no joke, started crying because I was, in my mind, I never thought that I would get to China because as a kid, it was just so foreign and so on the other side of the world and so unattainable that when we were coming down, I just started crying. Like, oh my God, I made it to China, you know? And then when I got there, so my parents are entrepreneurs, I got there and I, and I tell my husband this all the time, the people of China were so entrepreneurial and so ingenious to me, I just had mad respect, like mad respect. I mean, I'm walking around, I, they're, they're, they're selling their stuff and they have their little you know, stuff and I thought, these people are no joke. And so that, and even, that even thought, drove me in my own business, my entrepreneurial dream and my push. A lot of that was even stemming from watching those people make do with not much at the time. So I was just impressed. Tamira continued to embed travel into her work, but this time she was in the pilot seat. And she realized the importance that travel not only has on your worldview, but on your work view. She started creating retreats that got female entrepreneurs out of their home offices and onto the beaches of Bali. I always wanted to create a business where I could have travel be a part of it. So I needed to figure out how I could have the lifestyle and the money kind of come together. So when we started our business, Deluxe Life Media, the Lux Life is really just the Lux Life. We we create the Lux Life, and that is also part of you know creating it the way we want to. Bali, we want to go to Bali, so we figure out a reason. We want to go to Thailand, we just figure out a reason to go to Thailand. So the retreats came as who my target market is women entrepreneurs. What do women need more than anything? They need balance. They need to take care of themselves. They need self-care. They need to take a break, you know, especially if you're trying to, you know, do all this stuff. No one's stopping to, like, go get a massage and, you know, just not have to worry about everybody else. 
And if they want to work on their business, which a lot of entrepreneurs, they work on their business 24 hours. Why not do it in freaking Bali or why, why not do it in Malaysia? I found that every time I travel, you know, you've heard this, I'm sure the grooves, you have certain grooves that come in your, in your brain. Like you get up, you go to the kitchen, you have your coffee, you drive to work, you come back, you get these grooves that are just routines and then they become ruts, right? And then if you live your whole life, getting up, going to the kitchen, having your coffee, getting your car, driving to work, coming back. I mean, that's kind of like, you're going to, you can't think anything different than the way you've always thought. There's no creativity in a rut, right? So I thought, okay, if I shock you, if I take you out of your comfort zone, the only way that you're going to find a new way to build your business, new ideas, new possibilities, is I literally take you out of your comfort zone and then you can't call anybody to feel comfortable. Like they're sleeping, right? They're sleeping. It's literally on the other side of the world, right? So it was like, okay, you're coming over here and you're going to rest. You're going to be creative. You're going to think outside of your box. You're going to see some new things. You're going to watch these people be amazing and ingenious and do it in a way that you hadn't expected to really appreciate. So that was a big, big part of it. And I always tell people, guess what? When they get to the first day, I said, guess what? Your friends are sleeping. They're not going to bother you. Nobody's calling you, you know, take your retreat, take your retreat, get your massages, you know, take care of yourself. I think that many of us thought this year was going to be big. 2020, double number, fun to say. And it's been big, but in no way that we've anticipated. This year will loom large in our psyches for years to come, and therapists will be making money off of our collective anxiety for decades. But I think that once everyone realized that we couldn't travel for the foreseeable future, there was a collective whimper. Everyone saw the dates of their trips fly past them, the way that their airplanes should have flown past the ocean. Oh, I was supposed to be in Patagonia now. We've all had to readjust. But how do you live a deluxe life if you can't travel? In February, we were starting to hear stuff. And I thought, how am I going to... So I had a couple people. I had one person had who I'd already signed up right? And this was about the time when I started doing my big push, where people really start to sign up and pay. And I thought, I can't even market this now. I can't bring it up. I can't call people. I can't really push it. And that put some, put some shackles on me. This is in February. And I was like, oh, shoot. And then March came. And then we had a whole thing with trying to get the reservations canceled and and then get people's money, get people's money back. And dang, I mean, because we were ready this year. We had been saying since last year, oh, 2020, we're going to be traveling. We got all these places to go. We were doing all these things. We were like, hey, let's go to Singapore and Malaysia and Bali. Leah, let's do that. And that was supposed to be happening literally a few weeks ago, like a month ago. And it sucked. We had to make the decision at the beginning of this year, like, yeah, we can't do it. Man, it was heartbreaking. 
because usually we are traveling how, how much we're usually gone maybe two a month and a half two months a year yeah we're usually in asia because that's just where we like to go so the, the retreat itself was supposed to be the 23rd through the 30th of may but we were going to be there a month beforehand mm. going to singapore and malaysia first and then heading down to bali to do our retreat and come back so I asked Mira why she didn't move her retreats to online. I'm not so focused to be on something like a Zoom call retreat every day. I would be spacing out like I couldn't even do it. I can't imagine trying to get other people to do it. Yeah, just to add to that, I'm from the Midwest. So I still have a lot of friends in the Midwest. And most of them never even left the country. Even some people here never left the country. Yep. So just to follow what she's saying, the fact that you drag someone out of their comfort zone, you, you, you cause them, you force them to adapt in a certain environment. Yeah. And in Asia, it's, it's a little different here. Everybody's a hustler on the street. You yeah. know, all the food vendors, every, everything. They'll, they'll make a business out of anything. anything. I mean, <laughs> walking, they'll make a business out of that. Everything. I mean, thinking, yeah. breathing, they'll make a business out of that. Yeah. And when you see all that, you're just like, oh, how do these people survive? How do they make money? They, they don't make very much money, first of all what they do compared to what we do here our average wage yeah um, but it's, it's crazy it's just the way they think is a whole different the way we think we're there's no way to recreate that online there's just no way i mean he would like you know there's stuff that you know as asians they do they eat certain foods right and he'll go get like durian or some kind of exotic fruits that people have never even seen and that would be one of our things you go to a fruit stall he pull up durian and he, or he was playing some kind of fruit. And that just kind of like takes you for a, a little journey, right? Oh, 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 what is this? Durian takes you on a journey. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not raised with that, durian definitely takes you on a journey. <laughs> and there's no way to recreate that, you know? Travel may be non-essential to many, but it's essential to Tamira's business. Going abroad brings her clients into a new, expansive headspace. Travel has a way of cracking your brain and opening you up to different perspectives, tricks, and lifestyles that you didn't even know existed. So although she went through a huge loss, that entrepreneurial spirit was ready for something like COVID. She learned how to take her own lessons and applied bossing up to herself. Entrepreneurs have learned how to for lack of a better word, pivot. They learn how to die, come back stronger, right? Now, in 2008, I was an entrepreneur. I died and it kept me down for a minute. Like I had a hard time learning how to, to come back and that could have kept me down for the count, right? But I finally learned, right? So then when this happened, it was all too familiar to me, right? All of a sudden I go, oh snap this is 2008 i got this and i pivoted fast right so we just created something else still in line still still in line with what we do still with the same purpose in mind to help you know these wonder women super women grow their business still a way to collaborate right in the same kind of way a retreat will help us to like build these this kind of community and I pivoted to this book. And that's how this book project came to. Women Who Boss Up came from a pivot. 
So the book is all these different amazing, amazing women that I connected with right when the pandemic hit, literally. And they all were like, yes, I want to, I want to share my story and empower other women and men who need that extra boost so they can boss up. So that's what it is. I'm so excited, right? And showing you how to, in, a, in the face of something that's really difficult, like a pandemic, you get to, you get to boss up. You get to believe in yourself. You get to go what? Boom, slight to the right, right? It's been a blessing. Like, because my husband was still working his nine to five and I was trying my best to pull him out right? Because he was still, he would take lots of time off. He was able to do that because he was able to work from home a lot of times. But this pulled him all the way out. And our business has been like doing way better during COVID because of it. You know, total blessing and just happened to work out that way. She learned how to elevate during adversity. And to be honest, I think that it's hard for some of us to swallow that a lot of us are doing kind of well during this time as more people are being laid off and we're falling deeper into a recession. We've all had to pivot and slowly start to adjust to a new reality. The next morning, I wake up and introduce myself to this quiet haven. I have no idea how long I'll be here for. Sam is still asleep, curled up and back to me, shaped like an S. I quietly slip out and walk out of our bedroom, which has no door on it. There's no doors on any rooms in this place, except the bathroom. I walk into the kitchen, which is drowning in early morning country sun. I look out of the large glass doors at the naked forest we're submerged in. The branches on the trees don't shade us from the sun yet. There's a little porch on stilts on the other side of the doors. So I slip on my shoes and take a step out into the old winter air. Spring will be here soon, but the land is barren and frozen in a sepia tone, a beige and yellow, unlively land. In the distance, I hear the whistle of a black-capped chickadee one of the few birds that chooses to remain north during the coldest months of the year. I feel my heart rate drop when that faint two-note song plays in the distance. I'm so used to hearing the roaring of the city life, garbage trucks fighting with tractor trailers, the Doppler effect playing out reggaeton and rap out of car subwoofers, and the endless pummeling of construction. Instead, I hear the high note and the low note, and then stillness. I look around at the high hills around me. I see where the hill swoops down from our place and then curves back up into a forest freckled with naked trees in between the evergreens. Sloping down the hill is a fenced off trotten piece of land where three horses roam about. Under and around my porch, is a little flock of sheep. Two black ones, three white ones, and two black goats, all covered in wool. They quietly nibbled at the land. 
I take a breath in. And although I feel at peace, I also feel unsettled. Because the reason I have traveled so far is to escape something horrific. There was still so much confusion and panic and worry in the air, as small but pervasive as the virus itself. Although where I was is charming, it was still uncomfortable because, because as I awaken every morning in the country, hundreds more people are not getting up at all. So all I can do was wait. <laughs> 